0: please find Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36. It is Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? or who has been his counselor or who has been given a gift to or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen let's pray god your word is bears your perfection uh, your authority your goodness And you're so good to us to make yourself known to us through your word. So to that end, we pray that uh, you would work through uh, Brad and his ministry to the church body, and that we would understand well and receive well and apply well. Do that to your glory and for our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: There's a country song that you've probably heard. It's called, uh, I Want to Talk About Me. I want to talk about me, I want to talk about my, I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my. Y'all know the song. I like talking about you, 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 you usually, but occasionally I want to talk about me. We're not going to talk about you this morning, and we're not going to talk about me. And that is not the point. I do want to talk about the purpose of everything, though. It's doctrinal as we look at it, yes, but there is not anything that is more practical as well the purpose of everything Um, if i accomplish what i what i hope to accomplish today then i think we'll see that we're totally not the point it's not about me and it's not about you even though we so often miss the point there's a, a major college football team down south that every home game will pack in over 100 people to the stadium Raucous crowd, high intensity, national champion, contenders. And they play a video at the opening of, of those games. And it goes through, you know, basically putting in somewhat religious context, uh, the college football team and what's going on there and the pantheon. And, but it ends with one line. It says, it is the cathedral of college football and worship happens here. And that ends... That launches every game. It's a cathedral of college football, and worship happens here. We miss the point. We give so much passion, devotion, emotion, worship to the most insignificant things. And so often, the God who dwells in unapproachable light gets so little of those from us. We can miss the point. I want to talk to you today about the purpose of everything. And that purpose is a God who's truly worthy. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It is about that. And don't think, well, this is just a doctrinal sermon, so let me tune out a little bit. He's not really talking about me. I'm absolutely talking about you, and I'm absolutely talking about me. This is an incredibly practical idea, a practical message. It is the purpose of your life. It doesn't get much more practical of that. I want to start with two foundational truths this morning uh, to get us started. Two things that are foundational that we need to understand to get the rest of it. Number one, you exist for God's glory. You exist for God's glory. That is the foundation there. Everything, by the way, it's not just you. Everything that is, that exists, exists for God's glory. Colossians 1.16 says... All things were created by Him and for Him. Everything that exists, everything that was made exists for Him. All things were created by Him and for Him. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring My sons from afar and My daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by My name, whom I created for My glory. Whom I formed and made. Whom I created for my glory. You exist for the glory of God. You're even saved for the praise of His glory according to Ephesians 1.12. This passage as we're going to see in To Him Are All Things here in just a minute is about you existing for His glory. Everything exists for the glory of God. That's foundational truth number one. Number two is this, at its core all sin is idolatry. At its core, all sin is idolatry. And what do I mean by that when I say all sin is ultimately idolatry? I mean, at its core, it's it's an exchange. It's an exchange. You exist for God's glory, but you often trade it for a desire or a thought or a motive or an action that you treasure more in that moment. I know I exist for God's glory, I know He deserves all my worship. But I want something more. I want this thing. It appeals to me more. And I choose that over Him. It's an exchange. Glory for another. We trade God's glory for something that we desire more. And that's why Romans 3.26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God but what happens? We've exchanged the glory of God for something else. We've all sinned and fall short of the very purpose for which we exist. All sin at its core is idolatry. Exchanging the glory of God for something we prefer more in the moment. The climax of our passage, I want to start there and then we'll work back and see how how did he get there? How did Paul get to this incredible climax? Is verse 36. It's a climactic verse in the passage. It says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Therefore, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just break, I want to break down that verse real quick and then I want us to see how we get there. First of all, He's the source of all things. He is the source of all things. What does it say in there? For from Him are all things. For from Him are all things. We, 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 we know this. We believe in uh, it's what's called creation ex nihilo. Is the Latin there. In other words, out of nothing, God existed. Out of nothing, He created everything. He spoke and it was. Out of absolutely nothing. Everything that exists came from him. John 1 3, speaking of Jesus, says, all things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. Jesus made everything, he says in John chapter 1. We also see it in Colossians 1:16. We referred to it a moment ago. All things were created by him. For him, yes, we looked at that a minute ago, but all things were created by him. He made everything that exists he's the source of all things and he is the means of all things it says all things were created through him for from him and through him and to him are all things so all things were created through him colossians 1:17 says and he's before all things and in him all things hold together Hebrews 1.3, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So He didn't just speak it into existence. He's sustaining it. He's carrying it through. He's holding it all together in creation. And He's ultimately the goal of all things. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him are all things. Colossians 1.16, all things were created by Him and for Him. Everything that exists, exists for God. You exist for God. These chairs exist for God. This building and the materials that make it, and everything in creation exists for God's glory. That's why it is here. It is literally the purpose of everything. All things were created by Him and for Him. To Him are all things. That's why Paul climaxed this passage the way he did from Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. He's the point. He is everything. Basically, everything exists for Him. But why? Well, we've already seen why. He's the source, He's the means, and He's the goal of everything. I think that's, a, that's, that's enough. If we stopped right there, we would say, okay, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. He's the point. It's all about His glory. But there's more. But wait, there's more, right? Um, there is more. What about who he is? What about his character? What about his attributes? And Paul gives us some of that. In fact, it's what actually led to this, this crescendo, I guess, in his in his proclamation here in the text. What about who he is? What led Paul to come to this amazing climax that we see in verse 36, or really in verses 33 through 36, as Stacy read a, a moment ago? I want to look a little bit more into the broader context, and I think we'll see it. Why is He the purpose of everything? Let's look at that a little bit. First, we see that God is sovereign. We see that God is sovereign. And when we pick up, as Stacy read a minute ago in verse 33, you have this incredible doxology that's given, but what's the impetus for it? If you back up to verse 28, you begin to see it. It says, As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts of the, and the calling of God are irrevocable, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you may also... Uh, that they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. What is Paul talking about there? What's going on? And why does this launch him into just this incredible doxology that follows? Well, he's speaking of Israel in relation to the Gentiles. He's speaking of Israel in relation to the Gentiles. And Paul says that God brought about a, a partial hardening upon the Jews. Why? So that the gospel would spread among the Gentiles. It was always God's plan for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, right? It was primarily there initially a a Jewish contained gospel and his plan was to go to the ends of the earth. So God brought about a partial hardening of the Jews so that the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth. It's partial, not complete. At the beginning of the church, it was almost all Jews. That's why they met in Jerusalem there at the day of Pentecost. It was all Jews, right? But it was to go to the Gentiles. So God sovereignly orchestrated that. God ordained that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth, so He sovereignly placed a partial hardening on the Jews so it would spread to the Gentiles. You know Paul's missionary journeys. What did he, where was the first place he always went? He would go from town to town, and as soon as he would get to town, what would he do? Synagogue. I'm heading to the synagogue, and I'm going to preach. And what would happen when he did that? He got kicked out of almost all of them, right? He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Christ. Things go bad. Things go downhill. So what does he do? He says, okay, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. And he goes and preaches the gospel to the Gentile. And God does an incredible work. And this is not just a Jewish gospel. This is an everybody gospel. It's spread out through there. We see, we see a great example in like Acts 13 in Antioch Pisidia, if you want to go and look at that sometime, uh, read Acts 13. Verse 32 says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Please understand, when you hear that all there, it's not like every individual. It's categories of people. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's, all Jews and Gentiles is the idea there. He's consigned all um, to disobedience. Um, all Jews and Gentiles to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all Jews and Gentiles. There, as it says. And that's interesting, that too, that word consigned that we see um, in that. It, it means to shut up or to make a prisoner. And that's how it's usually translated in the text, like Galatians uh, 3.22 says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given. He imprisoned everything under sin. It's kind of what we're reading about here in the text. So that the promise by faith in Christ might be revealed, might be made to to those who would believe. It means to imprison or to, to, to trap up. In, in, it's used in Luke 5, 6 of enclosing a large number of fish in the net, trapping them in that sense, in, it, uh, in the, the net. The idea, though, is that God is so sovereign over all things that He, even through the imprisoning of hearts, can show mercy to the lost and dead sinners. God is sovereignly orchestrating this to bring about salvation to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, language, and people. God is at work in His sovereignty over the hearts of man, over all things. Do you see what's what's happening here? Paul's talking about God's sovereignty and how that ultimately results in salvation to the ends of the earth. And from that, talking about who God is and His power and what He can do, Paul's going to burst into praise. That's what's happening in chapter 11 here in this last half of it. A.T. Robertson, one of the commentators, says, Paul's argument concerning God's elective grace and goodness has carried him to the heights and now he pauses on the edge of the uh, precipice as he contemplates God's wisdom and knowledge, fully conscious of his inability to sound the bottom with the plummet of human reason and human words. He's about to just overflow. He's talking about God's sovereign work and how it's resulting in the salvation of all, which I, for one, am very grateful for because I'm a Gentile standing right here. And the gospel's come to me because God has so orchestrated it. Paul's now is going to basically throw up his hands and overthrow with pray and just overflow with praise at the sovereign power of God. And as Paul overflows in worship of the sovereign power of God, he's going, to, he's going to describe those attributes a little bit more that led to this, that makes this possible, and makes him worthy of all of our worship. And that's where we pick up in verse 33. And as he does so, he's going to launch into uh, just a, a few incredibly profound words about the omniscience of God. We see that God is omniscient. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Look at what He's done. Look at what it's accomplishing across the world. Oh my goodness, how Deep is the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, and how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul is praising God here for his inexhaustible knowledge. It can't be, it's, it's a depth that can be plummeted, as we read in that quote a while ago. He's praising God for his inexhaustible knowledge. By the way, it makes perfect sense that God would go from speaking about God's. Or that Paul would go from speaking about God's sovereignty directly into praising Him for His perfect knowledge because the two go hand in hand. God can perfectly orchestrate all things to His ends because He has perfect knowledge of all things. And I want to unpack that for just a minute this morning. I want to unpack it. I want to give you a working definition. This is not my definition. Um, I had to go back and try to find out where I came across it. And I think it was Augustine um, of Hippo. Who first said this? He gives a kind of a working definition of God's sovereignty, and I I, I want us to look at it this morning and, and talk a little bit about what it means. He said, "God knows all things in perfect fullness, both actual and possible, both in creation and in Himself, irrespective of time and space, and in one eternal moment." Do you get all that? God knows all things in perfect fullness both actual and possible, both in creation and in Himself, irrespective of time and space and in one eternal moment. That is an incredible statement. I want to unpack it just a little bit. He says, God knows all things in perfect fullness. God knows all things in perfect fullness. Elihu says... um, in Job 37.16, that God is perfect in knowledge. 1 John 3.20 says, He, speaking of God, knows everything. Colossians 3.2, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God knows everything in perfect fullness. There is not anything outside of the knowledge of God. And God knows all things in creation and in Himself. God knows all things in creation and in himself. God knows all things in creation. Matthew 10:29 says a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God's knowledge. We read in 10:30 that God knows the number of head, hairs on every one of your heads. Some of us that's not such a maybe incredible task, but for a lot of us it is. But God knows the number of heads, hairs on every head. Psalm one thirty nine four says, "God knows every word that will ever be spoken before it is spoken." And Psalm one thirty nine sixteen says, "God knew you before you were ever formed, and knows all of the days of your life before you ever take your first breath." God knows everything in perfect fullness and creation and in Himself. God knows all things in Himself. God is infinite, therefore His knowledge of Himself must also be infinite. It's easy to know us. We're just simple little creatures in the grand scheme of things. But God knows all things in Himself. 1 Corinthians two ten through 11 says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. God alone is fully self-aware. You don't even understand yourself. I don't understand myself. How often do I spend time saying, Brad, what in the world were you thinking? Why did you do that? Why did you think that way? And I really don't understand you. So... But God does. Not only everything in creation, but in Himself. It's a beautiful picture. God alone is fully self-aware. I- I love, listen to this. This is D.H. Cupper that says this. He says, God communes about Himself within Himself and He rejoices in that which He is. God communes about Himself within Himself and He rejoices in that which He is. He understands all things in himself god knows all things actual and possible he knows everything both actual and possible god knows all things actual that's easy we get that i mean everything that exists or happens god knows nothing's outside of that we've already established that but he also knows everything's possible god knows all things possible sometimes god gives information about what might happen but doesn't happen doesn't actually happen in scripture which is, is really interesting. 1 Samuel 23, 11-13. You have David, he's fleeing Saul. And he's rescued, or he, he uh, uh, rescued the city of Calaf from the Philistines. And he asked God a question. He says, God, is Saul, um, is, is Saul going to come to that city and attack me? And if, if, if he does, are they going to hand me over to him? And God said yes to both. And so he fled the city. Didn't happen, right? But God didn't just know what was, what was actual. He knows everything that's possible. God said yes on both accounts, and he fled the city because he knew what would come if he did otherwise. He knows what's actual, he knows what's possible. Matthew ten or 11 uh, 21 through 23 is talking about Tyre and Sidon. And Jesus said they would have repented if they had seen the works, uh, the miracles that Corazon and Bethsaida had seen. Verse 23 said, Sodom would have remained to this day if he had done the same mighty works that he had done in Capernaum. God's not just saying what has happened or what will happen, but if this happened, this was what would happen. He knows all possibilities as well. And God knows all things irrespective of time and space. Irrespective of time, God knows all things past. I think we get that. Everything's happened in the past, God knows, right? God knows all things present. I think we get that too. God knows what is going on here right now. He knows everything that's present, but God knows all things future as well. I had a professor in college that said he didn't, he's an open theist, and it never made any sense to me. I don't know how you get there, how you, you miss that, but God knows all things future. As well, Isaiah forty six nine through ten. Remember uh, from the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. He's declaring the end from the beginning, and long ago, the things that haven't happened yet. That's why we have prophecy in the scripture. That's why we have these things. God knows ir- things, irrespective of time. He knows all things in perfect fullness, both in creation, in Him and in himself, both actual and possible, irrespective of time and space. God knows all things at all places. God knows here, let me just here, this is an incredible thought to me. Yeah, He knows all things in reference to time, but he knows all things in reference to places as well. You know, our galaxy is, is huge, right? And then our galaxy is just a grain of sand in a, in, a, in, a, in a vast universe of millions, billions, whatever it is, of other galaxies. And in the farthest galaxy out there, the furthest you can go, there's probably a star. And that star is made up of millions, billions, trillions of beyond whatever of individual molecules, and God knows every single detail of every molecule in that star. God knows all things everywhere. God knows every detail of every molecule of every star and every galaxy and every part of creation at every moment. It's this kind of thing that I think leads David in Psalm 139 to say such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. I can't get my mind around that. I can't get my mind around God knowing, and that's the point, you can't because he's incredible. He is amazing. He knows all things irrespective of time and at all places. And God knows all things in one eternal moment. What does that mean? It means God never needs to learn. God never has to learn like you and I do. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14 says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom does He consult And who has made him understand? Who has uh, taught him the path of justice or taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is obviously nobody because there is no lack of understanding that needs to be filled. God knows it all in one eternal moment. There is no lacking in His knowledge that can be filled. If we could ask God the number of grains of sand on the earth, He wouldn't have to count them. And he wouldn't even have to remember them. God never has to reason things out. You and I do, right? Well, I don't know about this. What if I do this? He doesn't have to reason things out. God doesn't have to ponder anything. God's knowledge is always perfect and it's always present. God is never amazed or surprised. God never says, oh crud, I didn't think they were going to do that. Or, oh, I can't believe that happened. Or, there was this natural disaster. God is never shocked or surprised by anything. His knowledge is always perfect and it's always present. We must say with the psalmist, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. God knows all things in perfect fullness, both in creation and Himself, both Actual, impossible, irrespective of time and space and in one eternal moment. And that's why the end of verse 33 says, how inscrutable His ways. That word inscrutable, it's like a seven-syllable Greek word. I'm not even going to try to say it here. It just means a track that cannot be explored. I can't get it. All I can do is step back and say, wow, God, You are amazing. You are incredible. He's beyond being questioned. Because His knowledge and His understanding and His wisdom is in, immense. Next we see in verse 34 that God is transcendent. God is transcendent. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who's known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor? The answer again is obvious, right? That's a rhetorical question. Who understands God? Who's going to counsel Him? Nobody. 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 Why? Why is that the case? Because God has no peers. You and I do. And we don't even understand each other or anything else, right? But God has no peers. He doesn't. There is none like Him or equal to Him in any way. God stands alone apart from any other. There is no God like Him. God has no peers. There's none like Him. God stands alone, transcendent over all creation. God is not just a bigger version of you or a bigger version of somebody you really like or your grandfather or anything like that. God has no peers. You don't have His knowledge. You don't have His power. You don't have anything that He does not give you. Everything is a gift from Him. He has no counselors because He needs no counsel. Which leads us to the next one. Finally, we see that God is is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Verse 35, Or who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? Who's given God a gift that that now God's in, in their debt? Again, the answer is obvious. No one. Let me ask you this. What does God need? What is it that God needs? Well, Acts 17, 24 and 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is He served by human hands. This is a church. This is not the house of God. God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Nor is He served by human hands. As though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God gives everything. He's not the one in need. I love Psalm 50, 10-12. through 12. It says, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, those are mine, He says. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field are mine. Listen to this. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For all the world and its fullness are mine God is not in need God alone is fully self-sufficient and so A.W. Tozer says the picture of a nervous ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one yet if we look at popular conception of popular conception of God that is precisely what we see 20th century Christianity has put God on charity so lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy not to say enjoyable to believe that we are necessary to God but the truth is that God is not greater for our being nor would we be le- nor would he be less if we did not exist God is fully complete in himself God is fully self sufficient And Tozer goes on to say in another place, need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the Creator. God is self-sufficient. The difference is this. Your existence is entirely dependent on another source. It's entirely dependent on another source and sustenance that's outside of you. Everything you have, everything you are is is dependent on something else or someone else. God is fully complete in himself. God is fully complete in himself. I am not saying in this message, because I I hope you get the point already that the point is God is glorious and he's worthy of all glory and praise and honor. And that's the purpose we exist and that's what we should embrace and run after. But I am not saying this morning that God needs your worship. His glory is not tarnished one bit by idolatry. In fact, He'll even be glorified in condemning and judging that sin. I am telling you though that He alone is worthy of all worship. And no, God doesn't need it, but He delights in it. And He calls us to it. It is the purpose for which we exist is His glory. Embrace it. Run after it hard. Fulfill your purpose. God alone is self-sufficient. So we see this, and what's the conclusion? We see the sovereignty of God, we see the knowledge of God, that those two go hand in hand together, and we see that He Himself is the source of everything. He's the point of everything. His knowledge and his perfect and his self-sufficiency is everything. The conclusion of all this can only be for from him and through him and to him are all thanks to him be glory forever amen Let me ask you this What is your life? What is your life if it is not for his glory? What is your life that you're living right now if it's not for his glory? It's a waste. It is a, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a total waste. You're missing the purpose for which you exist. It's a condemnable waste. You exist for His glory. Everything else is just idolatry. But the good news, the good news is this. This sovereign, omniscient, transcendent, self-sufficient God who exists in what Scripture calls unapproachable light. We think, "Wow, this is who God is and this is who I am." That's a problem. It's a big problem because you thumb your nose in his face and you've done it over and over since the day you were born. It's a problem. This same God, though, who is everything and is all these things we describe, is a loving, merciful, compassionate God. And we're never going to get to him. We are never going to... Well, that's okay, because I can improve myself and I can get to God. It's never going to happen. So He came to us in Christ. He came to us. Lived among us. Lived a perfect life that we could never live. Died a death that we would only be able to die in hell for all eternity. And He paid that price for us so that we could know Him. Through Christ... We can know and worship the God who is everything. And if you don't know him today, I pray that you would see that, listen, this is who he is. He's the point. I'm not the point. I come and bow the knee to him and say, Jesus, I love you. I want you. I need you. I can't get through them all, but I'm embracing what you did for me so that I can know you and know the purpose for which I exist. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I pray it will be so in your life and in mine. Lord, God, I thank you. Not just for who you are, God, because you're who you are, Lord, because it's you. It's who you are. But I thank you that, God, for who you are, you've Made yourself known to me, and you've made yourself known to us, Lord. And you came to us, Lord, and invited us into a fellowship with you. God, that is amazing and mind-boggling. And I thank you that you made it possible, Lord, not by sacrificing any bit of your holiness and your goodness or your, your divine power, but, Lord, appeasing your own judgment on our behalf, standing in our place, Lord, and dying in our place to reconcile us to you, God, I cannot fathom, I cannot comprehend that kind of love, but I embrace it and thank you for it. And I pray, Lord, for us in this room, first of all, help us to embrace Christ, the gospel, the point of everything. And God, then help us to to live as if nothing else ultimately mattered but you and your glory. And let us walk that out day by day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.